And I want you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. book of Colossians, you may recall, it seems like in another life, um, we were preaching through the book of Colossians, and uh, COVID-19 hit, and the quarantine hit, and um, it's been quite a while since I last preached from Colossians, and uh, God, I felt like, kind of hit the pause button on me, and uh, wanted me to preach through the book of Habakkuk. And so I, I did that, and uh, now I feel like it's time to go back to the book of Colossians, and uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last time, which you may recall, um, the last time I preached from the book of Colossians, we, I, I talked about Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15, and uh, I told you that we must equip ourselves against spiritual deception. The devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he'll do his best to deceive us in any way possible to deceive us. And we've got to equip ourselves so we're not deceived. I told you we have to embrace Christ as our sufficient Savior. He is enough. Amen? Amen. And we embrace Him as being sufficient for our salvation. We must eliminate any efforts of the flesh to save ourselves. When we hear those words, well done, it won't be because we've lived a good enough life. It will be because Jesus Christ on the cross purchased our salvation, and as a result of that, we live for Him, but it won't be we won't get to heaven because of what we've done. So we eliminate any efforts of the flesh to save ourselves, and we must enjoy the freedom that is found only in Jesus Christ. That's where we left off when I stopped in the book of Colossians. I told you that the Colossians were being tempted to think there was something more they needed if they really wanted to possess salvation. There was something, something more, and I told you Paul refers to that as a hollow and a deceptive philosophy. They were in danger of giving in to that hollow and deceptive philosophy. And Paul has contended that there were was, there was certain practices that we saw in, in verses 8 through 15, such as circumcision and self-abasement, that would produce, they, they, the Colossian, these false teachers were teaching, that if you would do these certain things then you could experience a spiritual, spiritual blessings that you've not yet attained to. And Paul viewed adherence to these rules and these rituals as nothing more than relying upon yourself and relying on human tradition rather than relying on Christ. And so Paul's antidote to spiritual deception was to thoroughly saturate the Colossians with the gospel of Christ. And that's the, that's the antidote to being deceived, is we must be thoroughly saturated with the gospel. Jesus is enough. His victory on the cross is enough. It's enough for our sins. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Colossians 2. We're going to pick up at verse 16. Is this thing working? All right, for some reason, whenever we switch to this thing, I don't get monitor anymore. Yeah, I don't know why, but we don't get monitored anymore, so I don't 
I, I can't hear if it's working. So anyhow. All right, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from, wh from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now Paul has just finished articulating his theological convictions about who Christ is and the significance of the cross. If you back up and you read verses 8 through 15 again, you'll see that, that Paul has, has made clear who Jesus was, his victory on the cross, and now here in verses 16 to 23, he, he really is drawing out the consequences of our identity in Christ. And he, he's going to use that to show and refute the claims and the demands of the false teachers that was prevalent in the Colossian church. And what we're going to see this morning is that Paul really gives the Colossian Christians here three don'ts, alright? So we're going to look at this in a couple ways here. First of all, we need to see that he, he says here to them, don't let others pass judgment. And I'm just going to put that under the heading of rules without reality, okay? So let's look at these verses again. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul starts out here, and he says, don't let others pass judgment on you concerning these things. Now really, that's kind of an awkward statement, right? Because how, how do you stop somebody from passing judgment on you? We really can't do that, right? Other people can judge us all they want in their minds, and we don't really have any control over that, right? How do you keep someone from passing judgment? We don't, have, we don't have the power or control over anyone's attitudes or anyone else's actions. So what Paul was concerned about here is that the Colossian believers would allow the judgment of those who were advocating adherence to these behaviors and practices to cause the Colossian believers to feel condemned by not going along with these false teachers. And so the, the only thing we can control, right, is our response to those who judge us. That's the only thing we have control over. And there's a, there's a real power of peer pressure. And we who are adults don't like to admit that we give in to peer pressure. 
That's something only teenagers do. But the reality is, we as adults often give in to peer pressure. And that's essentially what Paul's saying here. Don't let others pass judgment on you. And as they pass judgment on you, don't give in to them as they're passing judgment on you. Don't change how you're living simply because others are saying this is what you need to do. So the question then arises, how exactly were they passing judgment? Well, there, there's two primary ways here that had to do with teaching from the Old Testament, Old Testament law, and the questions revolved around diet and days. If you read this, that's what you'll see here. First question revolved around diet. Now, as you know, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, it required careful distinction between clean and unclean food. For instance, you could eat anything in the water that had fins and scales. So if you like fish, you're good to go, because they have fins and scales, as long as they have fins and scales. Now, there were certain kind of birds that couldn't be eaten. In fact, there was a rather specific list of things that you couldn't eat, birds that you couldn't eat. You couldn't eat bald eagles, you couldn't eat owls, and there's a list of those in Leviticus chapter 10. Winged insects that went around on four legs couldn't be eaten unless they had joints above their feet in their legs. The good news was you could eat locusts and grasshoppers and crickets. That was the good news. Whatever parted the hoof and was cloven-footed and chewed the cud was off-limits. That included camels, so no camels for your diet, no rock badgers. And sadly, for those of us who love bacon, there was no pigs allowed. Now, God had very specific reasons why He wanted His covenant people Israel to avoid those foods. And the primary reason was he was showing the world through the Israelites prior to his coming the distinction that he wanted his people to be holy. He wanted his people to be set apart from the rest of the world. However, when you come to the New Testament in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this in Mark 7, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark here adds, Thus he declared, All foods clean. So Jesus comes along, and he declares, You can eat anything. All foods are clean. We also know that Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 in which he came face to face with the reality that virtually everything in his religious and cultural landscape was replaced by Christ. Christ commanded Peter, he said to Peter, what God has made clean, what God's made clean, do not call common, is what he says. And then you come to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, and the Gentile believers needed only to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that what has been strangled and from blood. So you see, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, no longer are we bound by the Old Covenant diet. Okay? So now you have in the Colossian church probably Jewish believers or perhaps people who are claiming to be believers who are saying, well, if you really want to grow spiritually... 
Not only do you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to observe the Old Testament diet. So that was the first issue. The second issue was days. There were certain days that they were in the Old Covenant to abstain from. You had festivals and feasts. Last Sunday, I preached about from one of the Psalms of Ascent. As they went up to the feast day of Pentecost, they were to observe those feast days as Jewish people. In fact, they were commanded to go up to Jerusalem and worship on those great feast days. The next thing here was new moons. Now, you may not realize this, but, but the Jewish people, they lived off a lunar calendar. And at the beginning of each month, the Israelites were to bring an offering to God, according to Numbers chapter 28, verse 11. And they were to have a, a festival then, and it was marked by sacrifices. And they were to blow trumpets over the sacrifices. They were to suspend all labor and all trade. They were to not have social and family feast. It was a celebration of the new moon, but it was a new month in which they observed and worshipped God. In addition to the burnt offerings, a goat would be sacrificed to the Lord as a sin offering. And each new moon consecrated they were consecrating themselves again to God for that month and so now you have in the Colossian church some who are saying we need to there's certain foods we need to eat there's also feasts that we need to attend to you if you really want to grow spiritually there's these new moon festivals that we need to have and then the third issue that the Colossians were not to allow people to pass judgment on them for, was the observance of the Sabbath. Now we're all familiar with the Old Testament commands concerning the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath, no work was to be done. It was to be a day of rest. Now we know in the New Testament that after Christ's death and resurrection, Christians began to observe, they ceased observing the Sabbath day, and they began instead to worship on Sunday. The Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. We're here this morning on Sunday in observance of the Lord's resurrection. It's a day of celebration, celebrating Christ's victory over sin and over death. Amen? That's why we're here on a Sunday. Because He conquered sin and death. Now brace yourself for just a moment. Because I'm going to say some things that are a little bit controversial. And I want to make one thing clear. I take no pleasure in being controversial. I'm not someone who takes pleasure in being contrarian, believe it or not. As you know, I've taken at times some positions that are a little contrary to the prevailing view. Tithing, for instance. Now, I've taken those positions not because I thrive on being contrarian, but because... I'm forced in my first allegiance to Christ and His Word to preach what I believe God's Word teaches. Now, I've, now that I've prepared you and you're braced and everybody's nervous, Sunday is the Lord's Day. It is not the Sabbath day. I believe that the Sabbath day commands of the Old Covenant were fulfilled by Christ. And now we're not commanded to observe one day as a day of rest. 
But we rest by faith in Jesus Christ every day of the week. Every day we rest by faith in Christ. And as such, I do not believe that the Sabbath day commands of the Old Testament are binding on Christians. They were shadows that pointed to the substance that is Christ. Now, I don't have time this morning to flesh out all of those details, but suffice it to say, this is an issue I've studied for years, and this is the first time I believe publicly I've ever stated this position, and I know I'm on dangerous ground. You might throw me out for being a heretic. That's all right. I'll be a heretic as long as it's in accord with God's Word. And I know there are wise people who would disagree with me. But here I stand, I can do no other, in the words of Martin Luther. Historically, let me just give you a little bit of a historical argument for just a moment. Historically, the early church fathers were very opposed to the idea that Christians should rest on the Lord's Day. In fact, they were so opposed to the idea that Christians would rest on the Lord's Day that they considered it Judaizing because the Lord's Day is to be a day of celebration, a day of joy. Tertullian, the church father Tertullian said this, he said, we do not allow, this is how serious they were about Sunday, the Lord's Day being a day of celebration, he said, we do not allow fasting or kneeling on the Lord's Day. Now why wouldn't they allow kneeling on the Lord's Day? Because that gave the appearance of resting, and that was considered Judaizing. In fact, that issue was so important to the early church that in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, they took action against the practice of some who would kneel on the Lord's Day and on the day of Pentecost for prayer. That's how serious they were about the issue. In fact, none of the early church fathers ever believed that Sunday, the Lord's Day, was the Sabbath day. None of them did. In fact, it wasn't until the Emperor Constantine became emperor in, in Rome, and then Sunday he began to, to make it where Sunday Christians didn't have to work on Sunday. And then there began to be some who began to have the idea that perhaps Sunday should be a day of rest, but really it wasn't until the Puritans in the 1600s that the idea that Sunday was the Sabbath day was held. Now, Let's return to what Paul says here in the book of Colossians. He did not want the Colossians to allow anyone to pass judgment on them concerning whether or not they observed festivals, new moons, or the Sabbath. Now why? Why shouldn't they allow themselves to come under these regulations? After all, what can it hurt? Aren't these things that God commanded in the Old Testament? And if they were spiritually beneficial in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, won't they help us grow in holiness under the New Covenant? Well, here's why Paul forbade the Colossian believers from allowing others to pass judgment on them. Because to consider these matters as necessary to the Christian life is to undermine the work of Jesus. And that's why Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Food and drink regulations, festivals, new moons, Sabbath days were all shadows. They were shadows. Now in Christ, we have the substance. We have the substance. 
So why would we go back to the shadows when we have the substance? A shadow is related to the sun, but it's much less significant than the sun. A shadow is temporary only until the substance comes into view. If, I'm, if I see your shadow around the corner and I see you coming, I'm glad to see your shadow because that signifies you're coming. But once I see you face to face, I'm no longer satisfied with the shadow. The substance is far superior to the shadow. The shadow anticipates your arrival. And in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, these regulations, they all anticipated Christ's arrival. But now that He has come, He is superior to the shadows. The law was our guardian. It was our schoolmaster until Christ came. But now that we are in Christ, we're no longer under the laws that He fulfilled. The reality is Christ is to whom He is to whom the shadows pointed. And so Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Why have rules without the reality when you can have the reality? Don't let anyone pass judgment on you for drink, for these food issues, for these festival issues. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Secondly, Killed the meeting. Drumsticks are even leaving. Number two, he says, don't let anyone disqualify you. This is righteousness without relationship. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now Paul here gives a second warning and he says, Warning! Don't let anyone disqualify you. The Greek word here has the idea of, of an umpire or someone who awards the prize. And the idea here is that the Corinthian or Colossians were in danger of being disqualified from the Christian race if they submitted to these rules, these regulations, these teachings of the false teachers. Now, how would they be disqualified? Well, they'd be disqualified by going along with the idea that these additional spiritual practices were necessary for the Christian life. You see, for Paul, the religious practices urged upon the Colossians were invalid because they didn't have a proper understanding of Christ's identity and the significance of the cross. Now, these false teachers are, are passing off the idea here that if you really want to grow, if you really want to be spiritual, this is what you have to do. You have to do. Now, Paul is very concerned about the Colossians' holiness. In fact, we saw in chapter 1 that Paul said that his, his mission was to present everyone perfect in Christ. He wants them to be a holy people. But here's what you and I need to understand. Our sanctification, our being made holy, isn't achieved through our efforts. It's not achieved through things we do. 
Our being made holy comes through the full presentation of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. We present ourselves, we consecrate ourselves to Him, and by faith, He sanctifies us wholly. Sanctification is not the product of works. Yes, we grow in holiness, but our sanctification is not the product of works of the flesh. Therefore, any religious practice that promises access to God or to the heavenly realm through any alternative avenue is a dead end. you got to do this and then you can really be spiritual. That's a dead end. You have to do this and then you'll be holy. That's a dead end. Now what were the practices that Paul said would disqualify him? Well, he mentions here asceticism. The Greek word here is interesting because it's a word that is often translated as humility. And sometimes it's translated as a positive thing. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 12, Paul will tell the Colossians to put on humility. And he uses the same Greek word. In 1 Peter, Peter says, clothe yourselves in humility. So why is it translated as asceticism here in the English Standard? And how can you be disqualified by practicing it? Well, you have to look at the context. In the context, in verse 23, the same word is used where Paul talks about severity to the body. In other words, there's false teachers in Colossae who are saying to the Colossians, if you really want to become holy, you've got to mistreat yourself. And you know, the church has had a long struggle with this for 2,000 years. For instance, the Christian mystic, if you want to call him a Christian origin, he took it so seriously when Christ said something about becoming eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom that origin castrated himself. And I'm not trying to be gross, I'm just showing you, telling you, that's how seriously some people have, have taken this matter. Christian monks, such as Martin Luther, before he realized salvation was by faith, slept on boards, wore hair shirts, People have exposed themselves to extremes of hot and cold. There's even been some who's lived on top of pillars for years on end. There's been, there's been people who have gone without bathing. Now, that still happens, but sometimes it's not because they're practicing asceticism. There's been people who have fasted for extreme periods of time. People who've remained celibate all their life in attempts to deal with the flesh. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to become holy. And so some resort to asceticism. And Paul says if you do, it disqualifies you. There's others who were, were teaching perhaps at, Colossi, at the Colossi church here that the worship of angels. Now I thought, I, I thought, well that doesn't happen anymore. But then in college, I remember when I was in college one time, a group of us had to, for a class, visit some churches that you didn't normally go to. And I'll never forget that service that night. The preacher got up and began preaching about angels and began to tell about the angels that he had named that were with him all the time and how he talked to them and how he prayed to these angels. 
I fear that the angels that he was, had named and that he was praying to weren't from the good side, if you catch my drift. I think they may have been from the other side. There was a growing conviction among the Jewish people of Paul's time that angels were going to defeat their enemies. They were going to usher in an ear of peace. There was a growing reliance on angels for personal protection, and that's one thing angels do do. They do protect us. I think it's actually probably more of a zone protection than a man-for-man protection, but angels do protect. They're great in their role, but there's one who's greater. Angels have a role to play, but we should never be praying to angels. We shouldn't even be depending on angels for our protection. Because who is the one who controls the angels? We depend on Christ for protection. He protects us. God does use angels in various roles in our lives, including protection, but it's always God who protects. You know, remember back in, I think, the 1950s, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they discovered the songs of the Sabbath sacrifices. And it indicated that some viewed themselves as participating in or having visions of the angels' worship of God. This is in the first century. And that would eventually develop into a Jewish mystical mysticism called Merkabah, which focused on attaining visions of God, seated on His throne, worshiping with the angels worshiping angels themselves. And Paul said, those who are in the church there at Colossae who are teaching you to worship angels, if you do, that practice disqualifies you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. He goes on, he talks about visions. He says, talks about those who, going on in detail about visions. Now some were claiming apparently that They'd received extra biblical revelations, revelation from God, and they'd go on and on and on about these extra biblical revelations. Does God at times give visions? Yes. Do we go on and on and on about our visions and about all this extra biblical stuff? No. We have the more sure word of God. And as a result of these Visions, some were being puffed up. So what's the problem with all this, other than the obvious, right? Worshiping angels is pretty obvious. The problem is, those who are insisting on these practices are promoting a false righteousness that's without relationship. Paul says they're not holding fast to the head for whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Any practice that claims to produce righteousness that can be duplicated without Christ is actually leading you away from Christ. Now since I've already gotten off in heresy earlier in the message, and you probably read it around me off, let me just dig down a little deeper this morning. Within the holiness movement, we've often promoted and often substituted 
practices of holiness as a sign of true righteousness. We have judged people to be or not to be holy based upon their outward appearances. We've accepted people into our holy club based upon their outward appearance. Maybe their clothes, maybe their hairstyle. Now, we don't like to actually admit that to be the case. We like to refer to these things as the way. Sometimes we even refer to them as the old-fashioned way, whatever that means. And when people refer to the old-fashioned way, typically they're referring to some of the practices and standards that we've equated as being holiness. You see the problem? Those acts of righteousness can be produced without a relationship with Christ. And righteousness without relationship will leave you disqualified. God's not interested in people looking a part. God's interested in a relationship with us. The head is absolutely essential. If you don't believe me, no, we won't chop your head off later and just, just to prove the point. But the head is absolutely essential, right, for life. You've got to stay connected to the head. There's no other source for strength than through our head, who is Jesus Christ. The goal is to grow with God's growth, and any suggestion of spiritual growth apart from Christ is false spirituality. Now, I believe, and let me just quickly say, I believe that someone who is connected to the head will grow spiritually. And as they grow spiritually, God's presence within them will inevitably affect you externally. It will affect how you live, but it will be the result of your relationship with Christ. And someone who is connected with Christ will not want to do anything to hinder their relationship with Christ. And as we walk with Christ, He will lead us on to that full surrender of ourselves where we consecrate ourselves fully to Him. We crawl up on the altar as a living sacrifice, and then we've got to stay on the altar as a living sacrifice. And as a living sacrifice, we will not want to do anything to displease Him, so there will be no areas of our life that we say no to God in including our outward appearance. But it must all begin with relationship. And when we begin to try to force external things on people who do not have relationship with Christ, we are in error and we're causing them to be disqualified. Because righteousness without relationship leads to hypocrisy. You see, holiness is not an it. It's a relationship. Does God want us to behave in certain holy ways? Of course. But God wants to do more than just have us behave externally a certain way. In fact, remember the Pharisees were willing to give God legalistic obedience. They were externally as holy as you could get 
externally, which you can't get very holy externally, but they were holy externally, if you get my drift, right? They lined up to the letter. But the problem was, they were willing to give God legalistic obedience, but they weren't willing to give God themselves. The question, am I holy, is really the wrong question. The question is, is Jesus being glorified by my behavior? Are people being drawn to Jesus because of my life? Is Jesus becoming more beautiful, more desirable because of what He's doing in my life? In this way, we de-emphasize ourselves and our performance and our achievements and we recognize that everything in us is a result of Him in us and His life being lived through us. And So Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you because rules without reality aren't enough. Don't let anyone disqualify you because in their insistence on external righteousness, it's without relationship. And then notice Paul also says, do not submit to regulations. And this is regulations without righteousness. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, just back up for a second here and look at verse 20 again, because there's something very important. Paul's asking a question here, and you've got to see what his question is, because this is a long Pauline sentence, okay? Because Paul's very good at giving long sentences. He's asking a question. If with Christ you died, you see the question? Are you dead? Did you die with Christ? What do you die to? You die to this world. You die to yourself. You die to sin. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? We're to die to ourselves with Christ. We're to die to the world. We're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And what's happening with the Colossians is they're becoming too preoccupied with this world. Because everything I've been talking about is of this world. And Paul summarizes them this way. Don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. If you want to be holy, don't handle. Don't taste. Don't touch. That's the kind of command you give to a child. And the false teachers thought they were giving commands that would lead to a higher experience with the divine. But actually, it would take the Colossians in the opposite direction. Because legalism does not lead to a closer relationship with Christ. In fact, when you have rules and regulations without relationship, it always equals hypocrisy and rebellion. That's where it always leads. Legalism does not lead to 
to a closer relationship with Christ. When you have a list of rules, you may feel a greater sense of security. The rules work like religious training wheels that keep you from tipping over. But the problem with training wheels is they're also confining that keep you from breaking free. Rules help us gauge whether we're making any headway in our religious quest. But that's also the problem. Because they lead us to regard our obligations to God as a checklist. And you can complete the checklist and you can be misled into thinking you've done everything God requires. Check, check. And some of you really like checklist. Check, check. And you can leave with your checklist checked off and no relationship with God. Verse 23, Paul puts it this way. He says, These indeed, in appearance of wisdom, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But what's the problem? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Rules and regulations look real good. When you can have a long list of checkoffs that you've completed, you can pat yourself on the back and say, Boy, am I holy. And you know what you've done? You've created a self made religion. Merely following rules, making rigorous attempts to prove to God how serious you are, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. A do it yourself religion puts self at the center, and as a result, it's doomed to failure. If you set your goals as self-discipline, self-awareness, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-actualization, self-help, you know what you wind up with? You wind up with the worship of self. And in your attempts to be holy, you're actually further away from God. Next week in chapter 3, if I'm still your pastor, we'll see what a holy life really looks like. And suffice it to say, a holy life will stop the indulgence of the flesh. But a holy life is not a life lived according to human precepts and teaching. But it's a life that's lived connected to our head, Jesus Christ. So i got some questions for you this morning. Are we going to follow cheap substitutes and shadows? Or are we going to stay connected to our head, the one to whom the substance belongs? Will we make substitutes? Or will we be satisfied with the substance? Are we going to follow human precepts and teachings? Or are we going to surrender ourselves fully and completely to God and grow in our relationship with Him? We can compose our list. We can comply with them to the letter. 
But that kind of obedience doesn't make us any more devoted to God. The law cannot produce inward motivation. That can only be generated by the Spirit of Christ. That is why we don't live a life under the law. We live a life under the Spirit and according to the Spirit. And so will we then, will we walk according to the Spirit or will we try to conquer the flesh by the flesh? The key is, and you know this makes so, people so nervous, and I've been saying this for years, but we get so nervous trusting the Holy Spirit to guide people. But that's New Covenant Christianity. You surrender your life fully to Christ and He will lead you and guide you. And I don't have to be the least bit nervous that you'll get off track. When I get nervous, it's not because you're doing certain practices that maybe some don't think you should do. When I get nervous, it's because you're not walking according to the Spirit, but you're walking according to the flesh. And that's where I get off track. Because we're living sacrifices up on the altar. And I've told you before that when the fire, when the flames start to hit, a living sacrifice wants to jump off the altar because we don't like pain. So we want to jump off the altar and get to more comfortable ground. But Christ has called us to be living sacrifices who walk according to His Spirit. Jesus, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I've done my best to preach what I believe Your Word teaches. Lord, if in any way I've gotten off track, I pray for Your forgiveness, and I pray that Your Spirit will lead me correctly. But Lord, I pray that You will help all of us, help all of us, Lord, not to depend on our own efforts, not to depend on external things, to make us holy. But Lord, help us to realize that holiness comes through relationship with You. And Lord, we don't want to do anything to displease Your Spirit. And so when Your Spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. To Your will, to Your way, Help us, Lord, to die to ourselves and live for you and live according to your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. May God bless you.